The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Remain standing with me this morning as we read the Holy Word of God. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, what a gift this day is to us. It is your day. You've called it, called us to set it aside as a day that is holy, a day that is different, a day that is be, to be used by your people to worship, to magnify, to glorify your name to gather together in a setting like this, to build one another up, to speak the truth in love, to bring the gifts that you have given to us to the body that we may be complete and whole and equipped for the ministry that you have called us to do. So Father, we thank you for this day. And I thank you for this people. And we thank you for this opportunity to sit under your word We're asking you, God, today that you would take your spirit, that by this word we would be changed. Father, I realize that that's a recurring prayer, but it's because you're not done with us yet. That not a one of us here in this room have arrived. Not a one of us have stopped in our growth, and our need for growth at least. Not a one of us can say that we have practically achieved perfection in this lifetime and so we need growth we need change we need the working of your spirit by the power of this word to mold us more and more into the image of your son Christ Jesus so we ask you to do that father we know that only you can we know that the words that I'm about to speak will be utterly empty and worthless unless they match up with your word of truth unless they are accompanied by the working of your spirit we're asking you to do that now for our good and for your glory. We ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I ask you to return to your feet, please. We continue reading together this first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, beginning in verse 3. This is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient word of God. We should receive it as such. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, Amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? And it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in his name we pray. Amen. So I'd like to draw your attention once again to that sixth verse here in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You may recall that we spent the entirety of our time together on the last Lord's Day contemplating that marvelous statement, the glory of of God. You'll recall that we looked at three very closely related yet different ways that the Bible seems to use that term. When most people think of the glory of God, they think of something that's radiant. Our minds most often go to the Shekinah glory. It is that brilliant light within the cloud that accompanied Israel during all her years of wandering in the wilderness. It then filled the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. Now the word Shekinah is just an English take on a Hebrew word that means to dwell. So we come to recognize that this supernatural light, it is a gift from God. It is an assurance to God's people that he is with them. It is a reminder that he has chosen to dwell with them even in their wandering. It should be no surprise then as we fast forward to the New Testament. As we find the one who is called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. It should be no surprise to us then that when we see him standing upon that high mountain, as he pulls back the veil to his flesh, he reveals that infinite glory which has always been his. It should be no surprise to us then that we see that same radiant glory. And I thought that hit me this week, and I don't know how accurate it is. I suppose when we get to heaven, we'll find out. But I told you that God had created, as best we can tell, as highest we've been able to count so far, something on the magnitude of 200 billion trillion stars. And I just wondered aloud to you people, if we're the only life out there, if this earth is the only place in which there is intelligent life, then what God has done in the creation of this 200 billion trillion magnificent stars was just a form of showing off. It was just to reveal his glory. But then as I thought about the radiance of Christ Jesus standing upon that mountain, as I thought about the fact that man cannot look fully upon the face of God and live, as I thought about just the, the power of that radiance, I wondered, was God's purpose in this? and creating this 200 billion trillion stars, any one of which can melt your face off. What's his purpose in this? Just to give you the slightest, glim slightest glimpse of the power of the radiance that shines forth from his face. If you take the sum total, 
the sum total of the radiance that comes from every single one of those stars, that you were to, to compile them all, put them all into one tiny little ball, and then shine them down upon the face of men, that God would say, that is something like my glory, and yet not that. Something higher and greater and more magnificent and more powerful than even that. Whatever the case, that's where our mind most often goes. It goes to the shininess, to the brilliance, to the radiance of God. But as we discussed last week, this effulgent light, as truly as it does show us the glory of God, as rightly as it is to speak about that is the glory of God, it points to something above and beyond and outside of itself, something uncreated, something eternal, something intrinsic to the nature of God. Now, the Hebrew word we discovered last week was kabod, it means weight or significance. I think that I threw out the word gravitas. But this points, this word kabod, it points to the, to the gravity, to the weight, to the significance, to the worth and the value of God. Not simply some outward manifestation of something, but an internal reality, the inherent value of God. Now, as best as I can wrap my simple mind around it, I define the glory of God as the sum total of his infinite perfections. Not just one aspect not not just one attribute of God among many but the sum total of all of them all that God is wrapped up in this one glorious word glory all that we will spend eternity trying to unravel all that we will spend eternity discovering and delighting in and enjoying and always more right around the bend that this gives us a picture of what God means when he speaks about his glory and then as men and angels as they behold this as we perhaps for the first time rightly gaze upon the glory of God and recognize the weight and the magnificence of it all, not fully, not comprehensively, but truly and sincerely and rightly knowing God and what he's chosen to reveal to us, that as we as his creatures, we rightly esteem this and appraise this and rightly value this, that there's this internal compulsion for us to give expression to that, to express to the world the glory of God, that this might rightly also be called the glory of God, the response of the creature to the creator so when we come to scripture and it says this that we are meant to glorify God it isn't that we add something to his glory is it that we do something to magnify his nature it's that we properly respond to what we have seen the glory of God so as I labor to show you from scripture this is what's at the very center of the universe this is the end for which God has created the world this is the true purpose behind why he has and is and will do literally everything that he does God's ultimate passion his primary concern, it is this, the glory of his name. And what Paul makes clear here in this section of Ephesians 1 is that before the foundation of the world, before there was time or space or matter or angels or humans, before anything existed other, anywhere other than in the mind and will of God, that it was this that was at the very center of his heart, the glory of God, that God was contemplating. And I'm not entirely sure that I can use that word contemplating when we speak of the omniscient God, that God does not remember things, God does not learn things, God does not have to work out problems in his head, that in one very simple act, God knows and is and does. And yet, I think we can say that before the foundation of the world, God was contemplating, God was planning, God was willing that he would create this world as it is, that he would sustain this world, that he would providentially move literally everything in this world to its appointed end, and that end being the praise of his glory. So I pray that you had some time this week to, to really meditate on this reality, to really allow some of the weight that falls upon you. I recognize that there's a lot that I deliver to you in any one of these sermons, and it's going to be difficult for anyone to fully capture all of that. 
It's difficult in one sitting, an, an hour full of scripture and thought and theology and all of this just poured out upon you. But my hope is that as we come back week after week and I give you another bite at the apple, that's why we move so slowly. I give you a lot in one week and yet we circle back the next week and touch on it again so that we get one more bite and one more bite and one more bite. And my hope then is that as, as some of that just ruminates in your heart and in your mind throughout the week, that it takes root and it drives you to praise. It drives you to excitement as God continues by the working of the Spirit to give you greater glimpses of himself, greater understanding of who he is. But I do pray that this week as you are contemplating what we had talked about in here, you're meditating on the truth and the weight and the, the magnificence of God's glory. I pray that you were not tempted to believe that I somehow spoke in hyperbole or exaggeration. Because dear children, you must know that there is no way to overstate the glory of God. There is simply no way to even imagine anything higher or greater, or more all-encompassing than who God actually is. Now, it's absolutely possible to say things about God that are not true. That's why we've got to guard ourselves very closely. That's, got, that's why we must rely upon the Scriptures and the working of the Spirit to make sure that we're seeing God as He has actually revealed Himself, and that we must be constantly reforming, constantly reforming our heart and our thoughts and our minds and our worship, constantly reforming back to this, Back to who God has revealed himself to be, knowing that there are ditches on either side. There will always be air in our thought. There will always be errors in our theology so that we're constantly trying to come back to what God has revealed. So it's absolutely possible to say things about God that are not true, and yet it is absolutely impossible to ever overstate just the magnitude of his love or his mercy or his greatness or his power or his wisdom or his beauty or his worth or his value or his glory. You see, man cannot create, even in his mind, man cannot create anything that is higher or greater than who God actually is. This is in part why God has commanded us that we are not to make graven images of him. Because anything that you can create, either with your hands or with your mind, will always be lesser. Don't think that your minds can ever go higher than who God actually is. You can never overestimate the glory of God. So I pray that as you thought about this this week, because I made some, I made some grand statements. I made some bold statements about God, the magnitude of his glory, and I pray that you did not allow the devil to get in your ear and to convince you that's just preacher talk. That's just exaggeration. Dear children, you must know that if anything, I undershot. It is absolutely impossible for you to even imagine or conjure in your mind anything that is greater than the God who is. I also pray that you did not succumb to the temptation of the enemy to believe that if this God is truly this zealous for the sake of his own glory, if he truly is this devoted to the magnification of his own name, that he cannot possibly be for you. He cannot possibly have your best interests at heart. But dear children, you must know that you do not want God's ultimate passion to be anywhere other than on his glory. For if the glory of God really is as I've said it is, really is as the scripture seems to reveal, if it really is the highest and the greatest and the most magnificent thing in all the universe, if it really is the thing that we have been created to enjoy, if it really is the only place that we will find true pleasure and lasting satisfaction, then despite what the world tells you, despite what your own heart tells you at times, you do not want God trading down. 
You do not want him to allow anything to encroach upon that place in himself or in his creation that should be reserved only for his glory. Because this would not only be foolish and self, self uh, foolish and sinful, two things which God cannot be, but it would also not be to our greatest good. Because you see, as God holds his glory up as the center of the universe, as he commands us to make his glory the center of our universe, as then as he works by his word and by his spirit to enable us, to equip us, to change our hearts and our minds and our affections, to focus upon that, he is doing us the greatest good. He is saying, come to the only place where you will be satisfied. Do you understand? That if God were to point to anything else, even you, if God were to say, you, precious child, are the center of the universe, you would get to the center of the universe and find yourself completely dissatisfied. But instead, he holds up the greatest thing, and he says, I command you to come find joy. I command you to come and be satisfied. I command you to come and drink from the fount of endless pleasures that is the glory of God. Do you see it? That there is no way in which God's desire for his glory God's passion for his name is in any way contrary to your good and to your joy and to your pleasure. So I pray that you did not allow the enemy to get into your head and to confuse you on this. I pray that as you studied on your own, as you went back and considered some of the things that were said in this room, pray as you wrestled with this text and the other texts that I presented to you on your own, pray that you were filled with a sense of awe and wonder, but also joy and gratitude just thanksgiving that this is who God is and that he's chosen to reveal this to you and then I pray that because you saw that picture because you were overwhelmed by what God has revealed to you in his son Christ Jesus and in his word about what he has done I pray that because you were overwhelmed by what you had saw you then fought with everything within you to put to death anything which threatened that vision anything in your life that threatened to hinder your view of what God is revealing to you Many of those things being within yourself. The pull of the flesh to make yourself the center of the universe. The pull of your flesh to doubt that God could really be that massive. The pull of your, threat, your flesh that wants you to be in charge of all and doubts his goodness. And so I must tell you that I truly believe that this is a massive part of the Christian life. That this is that constant struggle that we feel. It's not hard to come to church. It's not all that hard to read your Bible not all that hard to pray but it's hard to do those things with the glory of God in sight it's difficult to do those things while not stopping at what is right here in front of us and I think that that's the battle It's to move beyond the immediate and the physical and the passing and move on to the unseen and the eternal and the greater it's a fight for vision it's a fight to see beyond it's a fight to not stop here it's a fight to not get caught up in all the things that are clamoring for our attention to press on and see beyond to the true thing, to the true end of it all, namely the glory of God. Again, I say this seems to be at the very core of the battle for real, enduring faith. The battle I would invite you to become truly militant about, intentional, scoping out those enemies that are threatening your joy, that are trying to snipe down your faith, they're trying to lay traps of discouragement along the way, or trying to wrap you up in the things of this world. I pray that you would be militant in hunting them out and putting them to death. Again, recognizing that much of it is within ourselves, but that you would join this fight and you would do it aggressively, recognizing that it's a fight for joy, but at the same time recognizing that it's a fight for your soul. You would fight like your soul depends on this, seeing 
and delighting in the glory of God. Now I say this because we're going to look here in a moment at Romans 1. Now this is a, this is a bit of a detour, but I have a purpose in this detour. We're going to spend a bit of a time, really there's going to be two heavy hitters uh, in terms of text that we're going to deliver this morning. We're going to look at a fairly large passage of scripture in Romans 1, a passage very familiar to many of you. We're going to look at a much more brief, one single verse in Romans 9. But my purpose in this is very important. Number one, I believe that it will more fully allow you to feel the weight and to be driven to praise the glory of God's grace. I heard one commentator say that it isn't until you lay these other pictures out, until you unfold them and you lay them out, that you can fully feel the weight of the glory of God's grace. One man said that it's like that black velvet backdrop that the jeweler lays down before he delivers to you the diamond. It's the darkness of what we deserve. It is the darkness of sin. It is the weight of God's wrath, which we deserve, that makes that diamond shine most brightly. I've been playing around with my telescope. Thank you again, by the way. We had a fellowship at my house last night, and I kept pointing to it in the corner and trying to tell people about it. And they're like, we're just trying to eat chicken spaghetti and play cards. Leave us alone. One of the things you learn very quickly about trying to look at stars through telescopes is that you need it to be dark. Otherwise, it just doesn't look like much. At best, it looks like kind of a blurry dot of light somewhere off there in the, out there in the sky. But there's something about a pitch black night when for the first time you see those things as they really are. And so my hope for our time this morning is that I can, I can invite you into the darkness of the night. I can lay before you the truth of sin the truth of the way God would have been right and just to glorify himself in our destruction. And at the very end, I'm going to come and I'm just going to set that diamond before you. I'm going to point that star out to your eyes. And I pray that perhaps for the first time this morning, you will see it more clearly. You'll see it as it really is and you will be overcome, overwhelmed, driven to absolute praise at the glory of God's grace. So in Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, it the Apostle Paul, he seems to be describing for us here the, the root of sin and unrighteousness, the, the reason why God's wrath falls upon man. And he's, he's just talked about how he's not ashamed of the gospel and, 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 the, and the purpose of the gospel and the glory of the gospel. And then, then he moves on to this in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So this is a very familiar text to most of you that gather here on Wednesday nights. I feel like I touch on this text almost every single week. But I want to make sure that we as a body, as we gather together in this one main corporate gathering, that we get a look at it. So Paul is saying that he's going to go on to talk about the way in which God's wrath is revealed from heaven even now. Not just waiting for the day of judgment, not just waiting for the day of wrath, but even now the way in which God's wrath is revealed. As God gives men over to the lusts of their heart and all manner of unholy and unnatural and ungodly desires. But as Paul describes these people, you'll take note of something. That when he talks about the way in which these people live, and he talks about the way in which this unrighteousness is manifest. He talks about ungodliness. This is just a, a brokenness within us, a way that we don't reflect God. And then the unrighteousness, the way that that flows out of us. You would expect Paul to immediately launch into a long list of things that they do. Because when most people think about sin, 
when most of us think about unrighteousness, that's what we think about. We think about a long list of things that we're not supposed to do. We think about outward, specific outward displays of evil. And Paul will eventually get to that. Paul will go on to talk about the sin of homosexuality. He'll talk about the, distor- uh, the distorting and the disordering and the perversion of the most basic and natural of human relationships. Then beyond that, he's going to go on and list some very specific sins in verse 29. After he talks about the sin of homosexuality and the fact that this seems to be where every perverse and, and distorted and, and depraved culture ends up, lest we begin to think, well, we're not like this. I don't struggle in this area. That is not a sin of mine. He then goes on in verse 29 to go ahead and lump us all in. He lists things there like malice and envy and murder and gossiping and boasting and disobedience towards parents. He talks about all these other sins, these outward acts that men create, and truly these are. These are examples of grievous sins against God. These are things that are in direct opposition to what God has revealed of his own nature in his good and perfect and holy law. So truly it is right in the words of John in his first epistle to say that sin is lawlessness. But if you look back up at where Paul starts, he doesn't begin there. You might be tempted to ask, well, how did these men land here? Maybe they just didn't know that there was a God. Maybe they had no concept that there was somebody out there that they were going to answer to. How did these men end up where they were, completely twisted, and their, their thoughts depraved and perverted, and their, their minds set on these self-destructive things? Well, Paul goes on to say that God has made himself known to all mankind. This is general revelation, that God has revealed to all of humanity, at very least, his divine nature and his eternal power. Now, these are expressions of God's glory, I remind you. Remember, the glory is the sum total of all that God is. So that in every way that God reveals himself, it is true to say that he is revealing something of his glory. So that when God reveals to all of humanity his divine nature and his eternal power, he is showing them. The scripture says that they have clearly perceived it in and through his creation. Paul goes on to say that therefore, man is without excuse. There's not a single person in this world that can say, I am excused from knowing that there is a God. I'm excused from knowing these things about the God who is. Now, this does not mean that every man out there knows the gospel. This is not insinuating that some man just laying on his back, looking up at the stars, is going to land on Jesus Christ and the cross and the gospel by which he may be saved. But it is saying that man is without excuse to these things that God has revealed. It is saying, as I said to you last week, that no man can close his eyes tightly enough to blot out the undeniable glory of God as he has revealed it in the beauty and the intricacy, and the precision, and the power of his creation. And so even that hypothetical man, even that hypothetical man that always seems to walk into our thoughts, that's out there on that desert island, that poor, innocent man that's never existed. Because we know that that man stands guilty before God. Not only is this man guilty before God because he was born in sin, Not only is this man guilty before God because of his union with the first man, Adam, and because of the guilt of his sin and the original fall and his first rebellion, because we know that as this man grows, as this man develops, as this man gets older, he gladly joins in the rebellion. He shows a moral inability to rightly appraise God. He shows a stubborn persistence refusing to give God thanks. So because of this, this man just heaps greater guilt and wrath upon himself. Now, if we look at verse 21, we see how Paul expresses this. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now, this is sin. 
This is a moral choice, a refusal to thank God or to honor him. This God who has given man everything that is, this man who has received life from God, sustenance from God, every breath he's received from God. He sees the power of God in his creation, even in his own body. And yet this man, he stubbornly refuses to thank God or to honor him. It goes on. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, this isn't an, in, an innocent ignorance. This isn't a, a lack of access to information. Again, he's saying all mankind is without excuse. That God has revealed this to everyone, everywhere, and he goes on to say it has been clearly perceived. This glory of God, this power, this divinity that God has chosen to reveal in his creation, it is there, and they know it. This is why the world ties himself up into knots. Do you ever wonder why the world is so dead set on destroying our picture, the picture that Scripture presents to us of the creation story in the book of Genesis? It's because of this, because deep down in the deepest recesses of their soul, in those quiet moments, their hearts are crying out to them, God is there, and you owe him. God is there, and you will answer to him. And so in the darkness of their, of their foolish hearts, they cannot bear the thought of knowing that there is a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful and stands as God over creation. And so they shut their eyes tighter and they twist themselves into knots and they reject and they deny and they seek to explain away everything that they have just seen. But it's almost as if God is standing there saying, but you see it. You see it and you know and I know that you know. So you twist yourself into all the knots that you want. But the deeper you go trying to explain me away, the higher and the further and the greater your discoveries, at the end of every single one of them, there I will stand waiting on you. Have you ever noticed this? They've made no progress in killing God. Thousands of years they have been trying to put God to death and never made a lick of progress. They put telescopes in outer space. How many people do you think hoping that somehow they're going to prove something about a Big Bang or something like that? And instead, what do they do? They get to the end of it all and they say, we got nothing. It's beautiful. It's majestic. It's big, and it's unexplainable, but it doesn't keep their foolish hearts from trying to spit out some nonsense because they're afraid of just what that might mean. Now, please understand, I'm not saying this is a conscious thing. I'm not saying they look at, their, they look at themselves in the mirror and say, you know there's a God, but we're not going to play that game. No, it's a self-deception. It's a self-imposed foolishness. It's a self-sabotaging darkness whereby they truly come to believe this. See if this doesn't match up with the world around you. Is, not th is this not the way that the world responds? Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Again, this is a moral issue. It's a spiritual matter. This isn't someone with intellectual challenges. This is a self-inflicted foolishness. Again, I say not that they fully understand it. I think they are truly sincere in their doubt. I believe that the, that the enemy really has whispered to them long enough that they have completely blinded themselves to the thing that is. And we look at the world that is surrounding them. We look at the way that the universities are filled with people, all dead set on this, disproving the existence of God. We look at how men have risen to the highest positions of power within the government. And so where these men live then, they are surrounded by people that are reinforcing their foolishness. They're applauding them as they seek to put God to death. They're applauding them as they cover their own eyes. And yet this is a moral choice. This is a spiritual matter. This is an intentional blindness. Now, we talked last week about patterns. I, I want you to follow this one. I want you to follow what we see here as we see how their blindness is manifest, how, it, how it's carried out, how the, how the hardness and the darkness and the foolishness of their heart, what does it lead them to? Verse 22 says, claiming to be wise, they build themselves up. They, they think, we're the wise men, y'all are the fools. 
we are the simpletons in their minds. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Skip down to verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped, the, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Then skip down to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Do you see the parallels here? That God has revealed to them, to the whole of, of, of humanity, he has revealed to them his divine nature and his eternal power. In the whole creation, they see this. The whole of humanity, they receive these glimpses of God's glory as revealed in his creation, and yet man hates what he sees, and so he intentionally gouges his own eyes out. Isn't that what John said in John chapter 3? That the light has come into the world, but the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and he does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. That man so hates the light of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Man so hates the reality of God's glory that has been revealed, even in creation, that he intentionally gouges his own eyes out and then claims himself to be wise. Claims us to be the fools. But this is the picture. Lost and dying men, they hate the light. They hate God. They hate the glory. And they hate, most of all, the Son, who is the exact imprint and the radiance of the glory of God. And so, they refuse to acknowledge God. They exchange the glory of God for the things of this world, primarily themselves. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They exchange the worship of God for the worship of things, again I say, primarily themselves. And even in this fact, the fact that we see men constantly worshiping all manner of things, they betray themselves to know there is a God. That there is this compulsion within man, that God has placed this thing within us, this desire to be worshipers. But we cannot bear the thought of worshiping the God who is. We cannot bear the majesty and the ferocity and the thought that we might stand before this God. And so instead, what do we do? We exchange the worship of him for the worship of lesser things, more controllable things, more manageable things, less terrifying things, things that look like us. This is the picture. Dear friends, I tell you that this is the essence of sin. It's a trading down. How many times have you heard me say this? It's a trading down. It's a settling. Most often it believes with a doubting the goodness of God. Go back to the Garden of Eden, and what did we see there? It wasn't so much about the tree. It wasn't so much about the fruit. It was about the serpent coming and con convincing the woman, God is not for you. He's a liar. He is not good. He is not to be trusted. He is trying to withhold something from you. And it begins with this that you see these glimpses that there might be a God out there. And we see the power and the majesty and the might and the beauty and the wisdom. And instead of being drawn to that, the enemy is there whispering in his ear, if you go there, he'll destroy you. He's not for you, he's for himself. There's no joy to be found there. And so we doubt the goodness of God. We fall for the lies of the enemy and then we reject the greatest treasure in all the universe in exchange for rubbish. We play with the stuff we settle for the mud pies, and we don't come all the way to the source, to the greatest thing in all the universe. So then we see in God's response to this. You'll notice that what he says here is that the wrath of God is revealed, and this is very key for us to understand. The wrath of God is revealed. Revealed means that he's shown it. But there's a reality behind that, which is his wrath. 
not just in the revelation of his wrath, in his settled hatred of sin. The holiness of God coming up, up against the depravity and the filth of sin. This is the response, his hatred, his wrath, his set disposition, and he has chosen to reveal this. And look at how he reveals it even now. Even in this day, verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Because of man's refusal to thank and honor God, because man does not see God as the ultimate treasure, their truest delight, the thing that they are drawn to, he hands them over to their own depravity. He removes his restricting hand of grace from their lives and he gives them over to the things that are welling up within their own heart. Paul says that this is a display of the wrath of God. This judgment upon spiritually blind and, and purposely foolish men is that he hands them over. God doesn't implant the evil within their heart. God doesn't tempt them to evil. All he must do is simply turn them over, hand them over to the depravity of their own heart. This is an act of judgment. This is a revelation of the wrath of God. Now again, I, we will get back to Ephesians eventually, but you must, you must see this. We must see all this together, that this is the pattern. This is the pattern that we must see. The track of sin, the pattern of sin, the reality of sin, the root of sin, and refusing to see the glory of God. Seeing the glory of God and intentionally blinding ourselves from it because we're fearful of what that might mean. That that truly is the essence and the root of sin. And that once we understand this, then we can see the glory of his mercy. Then we can see the glory of his grace. We must recognize that not only is this the essence of sin in the lost world, not only in the reprobate, not only in those that will spend their whole life denying Christ, but in us too. That when we refuse to see God's glory as the highest thing in all the universe, that this is the essence of sin. That it isn't only found in the external things that we do. It isn't even just found in the thoughts or in the, or in the desires of our heart. It's a failure to honor God. It's a failure to thank God. It's a failure to worship and praise God in light of the glory that we have seen. This is why Paul says in Romans 3.23 that, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You need to hear me very well. This doesn't mean that, God complete, that man completely denies God. This isn't talking about a man that has an absolute hatred for the glory of God. This is exchanging even the tiniest fraction of the glory of God. This is allowing anything to even make a, put a foothold, just to set the tiniest toe into the place that must be reserved in your life for the glory of God. It's the slightest hint to the world that God's glory is not the supreme thing in all the universe. John Piper says it like this, sin is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. But while God has chosen to allow his name to be spurned, while he has chosen to allow men to continue to reject and deny and seek to put to death his glory, while he has allowed men to change, even handed them over, to greater exchanges of his glory for lesser things, we know that he will not endure this forever. This is the story of the coming day of the Lord, that there will be a day soon. There will be a day when the bar of God's promise from Abraham, a day when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete, a day when all wrath has been stored up, that on that day Jesus Christ will return and his glory will be seen in and by and through all of creation. The whole earth will be filled with his glory. 
God will be glorified. There is no amount of sin you can commit to hide from the glory of God. There are not men sitting in hell today going, na-na-na-boo-boo, I've rejected your glory and I've won. God, you may destroy me. You may punish me. I may suffer for all eternity, but you will not be glorified in me. That God will be glorified in all. That even as they reject the glory of God today, even as they exchange it for the trash of this world, we know that in the end, Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue, heaven and earth and Sheol and man and angels and demons below falling down and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is this saying that everyone will be saved? We know this can't be true. Too much of Scripture makes that clear. Jesus himself says that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life and few will find it. But what Paul is saying is that every single knee will bow. Every single tongue confess, and in all this, God will be glorified. That no matter the hatred in man's heart for God, no matter the level of self-imposed foolishness or darkness or rejection of the glory of God, in the end, everyone bows, everyone kneels, everyone confesses. Now, I think we see some picture of this during Jesus' earthly ministry. You remember that whenever he would come into contact with a man that had an unclean spirit, Whenever he came into contact with someone that was possessed by a demon, there was this response. We read about one of them in Mark 3, verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Do you see this? Not only will God be glorified in the submission of every last enemy of his kingdom, and that's what we're seeing. Why have you come so soon? Have you come to destroy us before it is time? They know that their destruction is waiting. They know that Jesus Christ is Lord. They know that they are powerless to stop him. But that not only will Christ Jesus be glorified, not only will the name of God be magnified in the submission, in the bowing and the confessing of every last creature that ever is and ever was and ever will be, but that God will be glorified in their just condemnation, in his divine justice as he pours out his wrath upon them. You see, for men to stand, For men to stand before the infinitely holy God still stained by sin and rebellion is to find him to be a consuming fire. They will stand before him and find that the glory that they spent their whole life trying to avoid, the glory that they spent their whole life rejecting, the glory that they gouged out their own eyes to try to keep from seeing, that it stands before them and that it now consumes them for all eternity. That in the end God will be glorified in all. And this seems to be what Paul is talking about in Romans 9. Talking about those in whom God's glory will be seen in their destruction. Now, we're just going to take one verse, and this is a massive, massive text, incredibly difficult to wrap my mind around, but I think I can, I think I can show you this picture here. But the context here is that Paul has been unraveling much of what we have spent six months wrestling with in here. The sovereignty of God in all things, including salvation. The reality that God will mercy whom he will mercy, he will harden whom he will harden that God will save those whom he has chosen, that he will pass over the rest. But then the question that creeps into our mind, the question that has creeped into many of your minds is, can then God be just? If God has literally ordained everything that happened and no man can resist the will of God and no man can come to God unless he enables it and man who are in their sin and been left in their sin, they will never be able to turn their own hearts to come back towards God, then is God just? 
Is God righteous to hold men accountable? How can he both be the sovereign God of the universe, literally ordaining everything that comes to pass, and at the same time hold men responsible for the choices that they make? Again, I say all the things that we've been wrestling with here. If we come to verse 22, Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now again, this is a very difficult passage within a very difficult text, but Paul is saying here that God desires to make his wrath and his power known. Again, I said, this wrath is a settled thing. It's a settled indignation. It's a response of the infinitely holy God against sinful men. And yet he desires to make that known. He desires to show it. That in his desire to make this power known, he has therefore been patient with sinful men. He has allowed men to continue to spurn his glory. He has allowed men to continue to spit in his face. He has allowed men to continue to flee from the things he has called them to do. God calls these men vessels of wrath. This means that they are really guilty. They are really fitted for destruction. They are really worthy of his wrath. That these men, as we have said before, they really chose what they most really wanted. And what they really chose, because it was what they most really desired, was everything other than God. They were vessels of wrath fitted, prepared, worthy of wrath. Now Paul says that God was patient. Again, I'd ask you to look around you. Has not God been patient with sinful men? How many times you look as men curse the name of God, as they reject his natural order, as they mock his worship, and yet you say, how much longer will you endure this, God? Don't you feel at times like the sons of thunder? God, send down something to destroy them. And yet God has been patient. God has endured. God has allowed his name to be spurned and spit upon and rejected like this. He's been patient allowing them time to repent, and yet knowing that instead what they will do is they will continue in their mockery and they will just store up further wrath for themselves for the day of wrath. But ultimately he has. He has been patient and he has endured all of this rebellion, all of this mockery, all of this, so that his wrath and his power might be shown. Again, this is incredibly difficult for people to grasp. We're not a church that shies away from preaching about the wrath of God, but there are many that do. It's, it's a difficult concept, and I've compared it oftentimes to people that feel like they've got to make an excuse for their drunk um, uncle at Thanksgiving. He's really a good guy. You just need to get to know him. So we treat God's wrath as if it's a thing to be bashful about. It's a thing we're supposed to be embarrassed about. Or, or we say, you know what? God is wrathful, and that's a negative, but there's so much positive in him. And so we'll deal with the wrath because there's all this good. And I, I know that's... that's that's the inclination of our heart. But then you come to a passage like this, and it says God desires to show his wrath. Not just here. Other passages throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 28, 63. When he's talking about the blessings and the curses that will come upon Israel for obedience or for disobedience, he says, And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. I need you to hear me very clearly. God does not delight in wrath and destruction for the sake of wrath and destruction. This is the same God who says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. Well, which one is it, God? We know that God is not the author of confusion. We know that he's not somebody with split or multiple personalities. You must hear me now. God's desire, his heart, 
his joy, his ultimate purposes are not found in wrathful vengeance. They're found in what that wrath reveals. What that wrath shows us about who God is. God's passion is for the display of his glory. And the glory of God is seen. The holiness of God is seen in his response to sin. In his just and right judgment upon condemned, rightly condemned sinners. But he says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order so that for the purpose of, in order to make known the riches of his glory. That's the reason. God has endured the sins of men. He has allowed his name to be mocked. He has allowed men to continue to reject his glory and to run after all manner of evil and detestable things. He has been patient with them in order that because he desired to show his wrath, because he desired to make his power known, because he wanted you to see his holiness, his holy disposition towards sin and sinners, his preference for holiness and obedience in order that we might see and know the riches of his glory. Not wrath for wrath's sake, wrath for glory's sake. Do you see the difference? Remember, this thing we call glory, it is the fullness of God. We would not see God as fully as he is, as fully as he desires to reveal himself were he to hold these things back. We would not, again I say, know God's preference for obedience and holiness and orderliness if we did not see his response to sin and sinful men and men who persist in this. We would not be blessed. If we truly believe that God is the highest and the greatest and the most magnificent, then we must long to see as much of him as he would see fit to reveal to us. So do you see the gift of God seen in this wrath? As he reveals not the destruction of men, but he reveals who he is, his infinite holiness. Are you seeing it a bit more clearly now? You see the way that we are blessed. You see the way that God is magnified. You see the way we're not supposed to be bashful with regards to God's pouring out of his wrath. That his purpose in this, that his patience in this, that his enduring with sinful men, even his elevating. You wonder, why do so many sinful men rise to positions of prominence? God, why would you allow this man to become president, this man to become king, this man to become pharaoh, if he's only going to use that power to reject your glory and to mistreat your people? God says it's for this. He says expressly in verse 17, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Speaking of Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What happened after God poured out those plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians? What happened after God destroyed those men with the coming back of the sea over the top of them? People knew there was a God. They knew that God was with Israel and they knew that, that God could not be stopped and they trembled in fear. So God desiring to show the full range of his attributes, not just one, not just the other, desiring for his own glory and for our own good, desiring to show us much more of himself than we would ever see were there not sin, were there not evil, were there not his response to sin and evil in his wrath. He has endured this. He has endured the mockery of his name. Do you see it more clearly now? That No matter how strongly men resist the glory of God, no matter how they despise the glory of God, in the end, he will make his glory known in their just and righteous destruction. That God will be glorified. Specifically, in their case, God's glory will be praised in his wrath. And his holy hatred towards sin. 
And again, Christian, I remind you that this is right, this is praiseworthy, and this is good. We get so bashful, I think, because whenever we think of anger, whenever we think of wrath, we think of that from a human standpoint. We only know ourselves, and we're capricious, and we've we're, we got a short temper, and we're, we're, we're just always firing off the wrong people for the wrong purposes in the wrong way. This is not the case with God. But God is very resolute and unchanging in this. J.I. Packer says that God's wrath is never, to, never capricious or self-indulgent or irrational or morally ennoble the way that human anger is. It is instead the right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is revealing his holiness to us and rightly responding, patiently responding. I even say graciously responding in his patience to sinners. I'd encourage you, we don't have time, but I encourage you to go read Isaiah 66. You will see there God's judgment resounding to his glory. We look at the end of the book. We look in Revelation 14. Now, once somebody pointed this out to me, it was truly mind-bending. It changed the way I understood the wrath and the judgment of God. Because what we find then is that as we leave this earth and we are no longer in these fleshly bodies, as we are no longer stained by sin, is our mind and our judgment and our understanding of sin and ourself and of God are clouded by the things of this world, is we finally see things as they are. That on that day when God brings his just judgment upon sinners, even sinners whom we love, as God pours out his wrath upon them, our worship just raises higher and higher and higher. Revelation 14 talks about the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever and ever, and the saints are worshiping. And the angel of the Lord cries out, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. The reason we hate God's wrath the reason we see God's wrath is we don't celebrate it. If God doesn't celebrate the destruction of the wicked, neither do we, but we celebrate what it reveals. We talk about it as a revelation of his glory. But the reason that we are always so bashful about this, the reason that there's something within us that is always pulling back is we don't really see him as he is. We don't yet fully see his glory the way it will be known in heaven. Because of that, we don't really see our sin the way that we will see it and know it in heaven. But you must recognize this, that God's just wrath upon sinners, it is not a blemish to be overlooked. It is a glory to be praised. And the reason that I show this to you is not just to provide this dark backdrop behind which the, 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 the diamond, the, the brilliance, the radiance of his mercy and his grace might shine all the brighter. It's also because you must recognize that God could have been glorified in you in your condemnation. It isn't as if you held God, God ha uh, hostage God, the only way you're going to be glorified in me is if you bring me to you into salvation. He says, no, I'd be glorified you in you as I poured out my wrath. He has an act of grace, as an act of love, and as an act of mercy, as an expression of my desire for you. I have chosen instead that I will be glorified in the grace, in the mercy, in the salvation that I pour into your life. Do you see the gift? Do you see the way this magnifies the mercy? That God wasn't just doing this just to display his holy indignation towards sin. He was also doing it so that we can more rightly see his mercy. We will never see it as it is. It will never shine as brightly as it should. We will never value it. We will never treasure it. We will never sing songs of praise about it until we see it in contrast with his wrath. That's exactly what Paul is saying. In order to make known the riches of his glory 
for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That's you, Christian. You're a vessel of mercy. God says that he has done all of this for the purpose. That's the why. The true and ultimate desire, the the passion for God's heart is in mercying you. Displaying to you the full range of who he is, magnifying his grace and his mercy and his goodness in your life as you look upon what should have been. What should have awaited you. How many times have you pursued down this path of sin? How many times have you rejected the glory of God and yet you woke up one day and realized God has completely turned me away from this thing? We throw out this phrase all the time, but for the grace of God, there go I. Do we mean it? Do you see God's goodness and his restraining hand upon your life when he keeps you from the edge of that cliff? When he sends someone who loves you into your life to discipline you and to correct you and to call you back? It's a gift of grace. But for the grace of God, there go I. We see this all the more and we see his just condemnation upon sinners. As we see his wrath displayed even now as he hands them over more and more and more. So I hope that I haven't wandered so far off the trail that you can't see our way back here. I want you to hear now this text that we have just read in in Ephesians. I want you to hear it again. Ephesians 4 through 6 in light of everything that we have just said. I'm just taking the diamond. I'm just setting it down upon the felt and I'm wondering if it doesn't look a little brighter to you this morning. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. You deserve to be vessels of wrath to the praise of his glorious wrath. But instead he has chosen you. He has predestined you. He has elected you in Christ Jesus that you would be holy saints, blessed sons, welcomed into his kingdom so that you will not, pra- you will not be an object of praise to the glory of his wrath. You will be objects of praise to the glory of his grace. That in grace, God is giving you everything that he is. We can't view grace as something that God gives us external to himself. It is by grace that everything that God is becomes for you. His divine nature, his infinite power, no longer coming against you in destruction, but infinitely, eternally for you. And the only right response to this is praise. We'll come back to this next week. But the only right response to this is praise. As you study that word praise in Scripture, you seem to find, particularly in the New Testament, you seem to find two truths that resound about it. Number one, it is always driven by some glimpse or insight or knowledge or understanding of God. And the ones who praise have an overwhelming compulsion to let it out. I want you to think about many of the men that Jesus healed during his earthly ministry. How often did he look at these men and say, they'd just seen a glimpse of God's glory and God's goodness and God's mercy. And Jesus would look at them and say, yeah, it's it's not time to press the issue yet. So go to your house and keep your mouth shut. And what would they do? 
the opposite. This tells me that even when the Son of God, even when the Christ looks you in the eye and says, I know you've just seen the glory of God. I know you've just experienced his mercy and his grace and his goodness, but it's not time to talk about it yet. You say, I love you, and I'm thankful for what you've done, but my joy will not be complete until I let this out. I've got to shout it from the rooftops. I've got to express it. That's what troubles me about so many people that claim to have experienced the saving, efficacious grace of God and yet have no use for him. They're not living lives of praise. I'm not just talking about in a room like this. I'm talking about in their day-to-day life. The legs that Jesus has just healed, they're not using them to run to him. The eyes that he has just opened, they're not using them to behold his glory. The lips that he has just unstuck, they're not using them to sing songs of praise. All the gifts that he has given, they're not using them to the praise of his glorious grace. And I wonder, then have you ever known it? Have you ever seen it? Dear children, this was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. This is the, apostles, the Apostle Paul's prayer for the people in Ephesus. Therefore, it is my hope and my desire for you. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, it is only in light of your just judgment. It is only in light of your righteous wrath. It is only in light of what we deserve that we can fully see and know and appreciate and praise what you have done in your mercy and in your grace. So Father God, my, my desire, my hope, my, my prayer for these people, for those whom are yours, that you would use this time, use their own studies, use their own meditations to bring them to a greater knowledge and vision of you. For those who have not yet seen your glory as it is, those who have intentionally blinded themselves, those who have rejected and run, or perhaps those who are deceived, those who have settled, settled for counterfeit light, those who have, who have been drawn to a light like a bug zapper instead of one of the stars above, I pray, Father, that you would open their eyes, that you would shine the light of your glory in their heart, that they would come to a knowledge of your glory in the face of your Son, Christ Jesus. I'm asking you to save them. I'm asking you to do it, of course, for their good, but for your glory. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.